Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. Really quickly, before we get into this episode, I wanted to mention my Patreon. Patrons get all the podcasts a week early. I do giveaways, I do some other stuff, but most importantly, if you want me to review your music or artwork or anything else, Patreon is the way to do that. Every month I do a call for submissions. All you need to do if you want me to review something is just post it in the comments of that post. Then I will review it live on Twitch for the hundreds of people that tune into every stream and post it on Patreon for everyone to check out. All you need to do is just join at the $10 and up level. Stay tuned for that post and you are good to go. So if that sounds cool to you and you want me to review your music, artwork, or anything else, hit the link in the show notes for this episode. And thank you very much to everyone who supports over on Patreon. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for this. Yeah, thank you. So are you uh, are you still in the shed in Maple Valley? I am. My brother, who has kind of the official invisible creature lair, uh, the barn, is about a mile away. Oh, okay. And so I worked there for a while, a few years back. And then as I started to sort of need more flexibility to do, you know, stuff like this or songwriting and things like that, I fleshed out my own space. So I'm a little bit outside of my house, a few feet. Um, this is a big three-car garage, and we made this one bay into my little design slash recording space. Cool. Well, you know, I guess... Uh... The big thing to talk about today is the upcoming album and the 20th anniversary of the band, which I, I'm so old that I still think of Demon Hunter as a relatively new band. Yeah, me too. <laughs> How does it feel to you know be celebrating the 20th anniversary? Like you, I, I feel old. It feels awesome. It's something I never would have expected 20 years ago. You know, Back then, I had been in a couple bands that had maybe one or two releases and then sort of fizzled out and I felt like that was sort of the norm it probably is the norm from a mm -hmm. lot of bands I always dreamed of having like a stack of you know catalog and I'm at we're at that point now where it's it's pretty sweet looking at them all piled up um and so I mean yeah it feels amazing I think a lot of our longevity has to do with just the way that we sort of tailored this thing to to work for us not touring like dogs year round um and sort of you know, we were five guys living in four different states, so we're not in each other's faces all the time. When we get together, we still love hanging out. It's like a family reunion. And so that's helped kind of keep this thing fun. Every time we get together and do it, it's still like we're all having a blast. So I think that's helped. I mean, living in a van with people for months and months and months a year is a good way to start hating each other. A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the new album. The only thing I have heard is Freedom is Dead, which felt to me like, you know, one of the heavier songs you guys have done in a while. What can people expect from the album? I mean, it's a smattering, man. Uh, like like most of our albums have sort of gone in the last 10 years or so. There's a pretty big um, range. Um, and obviously, that's always been something that we've that's been a, a touchstone of ours is we've had the, the ballads, um, for lack of a better term. And then we've had stuff that sort of you know, has, has some electronic influence. We, uh, we play a little bit with like a grunge influence. We obviously were the, the root or the core of our sound is somewhere in the metal core meets new metal meets, I don't know, there's some thrash, you know, it's like a little bit of everything. And there's definitely a little bit of everything on this record as well. I would say it's pretty self-indulgent as far as Demon Hunter goes. Well, what does self-indulgent mean? Uh, long songs. There's several songs that, that are close to the eight uh, minute mark and then 
when we're making decisions that are less about like what is typical, what should a song, you know, how how long should it take to get to a chorus, whatever, you know, that we had written a song called Sounds of the World, which was already really long. After we had tracked it, we were like, why don't we get rid of the first chorus altogether? <laughs> like almost tease like we're going to get to it and then just drop it right back into the second verse. And it just felt really cool. And so we had decision making like that happening throughout the process that felt more like, what do, what do we just really want to do? It's not always going to be something that makes a ton of sense in terms of like structure, pop structure, or things like that, you know. Is that different from the way you would approach the decision making in the past? Well, in some instances, um, if a song felt like it had some legs as a single, I feel like in the back of my mind, I would make decisions that sort of catered to that fact. For like a song like Last One Alive, you know, I wouldn't have, even if I felt like it, I wouldn't have added two minutes to that song you know, some instrumental interlude or something like that. I just, even if it felt cool, I knew that song was going to have some legs. So perfect example, again, with Silence of the World, I feel like that's a, a really good contender for a single in terms of the the chorus and it's got a good guest on it and stuff. And it just, it didn't matter at this point. You know, we're, we're at that point now where we, we know we're not like a huge radio band. We know we're not, we're not certain things and we are other things. And we're also at that point, it's like, if we can't do sort of whatever we want to do after 20 years and 11, you know, 11 albums, you know, that would be a bit of a bummer. I, I don't want to feel like we're ever pigeonholed into anything. And luckily, we have this big playground to play in. Like the guardrails for us are really wide, wider than they are for most bands. And that's what I love about being in this band. It's another thing that I feel like has given us longevity is we don't feel like we're in some sort of prison in terms of a style. Um, we we can play all over the place. At this point, if someone likes Demon Hunter, they're probably going to like anything you do, as long as it's not, you know, ska or something like totally out of left field. <laughs> of course. You know? Yeah. There's still like an on-brand for us, but that on-brand is is bigger than I, you know, than I feel it is for most bands. This might be kind of a a, a weird question, but having you, hearing you say on-brand, do you ever feel like your background as a designer like informs the way you think about the music? as like a product you would design, if that makes sense? A hundred percent. It's interesting you ask that because I've been thinking about that lately and how that question's come up over the years. And I used to say, for the most part, no, that they totally live autonomously as like, this thing is this and this thing is this. In more recent years, or maybe even the last year or two, I have come to realize that, yeah, they're hugely influencing one another as, I, as I've gone along. I would say one of the biggest attributes that design has given me for songwriting is just not to overly toil about things and just get it to a point where I'm I'm satisfied with it and then don't and then at that point don't overthink it and don't get in my head about it that's something I have to do with design because right. I don't have the time I mean time is money I don't have the time to do that with with everything that I work on sometimes I have the the time to sit and toil about something 90% of the time I don't so that being able to sort of think on my feet and actually work really fast and get satisfied quicker, you know, get to that final product that I'm actually, that I actually like and can stand behind faster um, is something that has always allowed us, you know, like I said, we don't tour a lot. We, a lot of us have full-time gigs outside of the band, but that hasn't stopped us from doing more frequent records than probably a lot of our contemporaries. So part of that is just being able to sit down, write a song, not overthink it, just submit to it and and be proud of it at the same time. But it's just thinking sort of quickly. I think that has a lot to do with it. Right. 
Well, speaking of art, uh, I understand there's you, you have the comic book. Is that directly tied to this album or is that its own thing? Or what can you tell us about that? Uh, yes and no. It's definitely tied to this album. It's of the same name. It's very much a heightened, dramatized version of what a lot of the songs are talking about, which has a lot to do with modern tech, social media, all of those types of things. So yes, in that instance, it does. It is tied to the record in that way. The I would say the caveat is that when I was creating this, I didn't want for it to feel like a piece of band merchandise. I feel like so many of the the band related comics are so band specific. So you would have gotten in a cereal box. Yeah, I wanted this to be like if you're a Demon Hunter fan, if you get it on behalf of the band and you sit in to look at it, you can pull out all of these subtle to, you know, not so subtle little Easter eggs, so to speak, someone's name, a likeness, something in the background, initials, song titles. There's all that kind of stuff sort of peppered throughout it. But if you were to go into a comic store and you had no idea who Demon Hunter was and you pick this up just to read it as a comic, that it would totally live on its own and it didn't need any sort of accompaniment, any sort of like explanation like, oh, you wondering why this is weird. Oh, it's a, it's a band thing. So it's right. it's my goal was to not do have it do that at all and treat it really like like its own thing. Did you ever see the comic that the accused did back in the day? I did not. No, it was exactly that. I mean, I happen to love the band, but yeah. the comic was like legit stood on its own. And I was really respected that. That's cool. That's cool. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So you wrote that, correct? I did. Yeah. Did you like get involved with the art direction at all? Or like, how did you sort of handle that side of it you know we'd been bouncing around the idea of doing a comic for probably the better part of the last decade and it just it didn't seem like the right time to do it until now being that this record is pseudo conceptual and it had sort of like this it lent itself really well to a story like this when i when we first ventured into like what was what it was going to be at all my assumption was that it was going to be a you know 100 plus page graphic novel which all things told, it will be when all four issues come out. But in order to get the first issue out with the record, we had to sort of break it up. The time that it takes to create these things is, is insane. And comic artists and, and all the people involved are very booked out. Uh, they tend to be booked out. So if we were going to try to bite off the whole thing, we would have had to push the record back like a year, which we didn't want to do. So, But as we were sort of formulating all the plans for it, my initial thought was that I would probably just give a synopsis and sort of a world, you know, build like a little bit of a story Bible and hand that over to someone um, and sort of tell them like vague ideas of what I'd like to go for. And the more I started to sort of build this like story Bible and these backstories and these characters, I realized like really fast, there's no way I'm going to hand this to someone. I'm going to be just as much of a control freak about it as I am with everything else. So I just jumped in. It's your turn to be the nightmare client. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just jumped in. And I mean, I love a challenge like this. I love writing. I'd never done any writing like this, any like script type writing. I don't do a ton of long form writing anyway, but it's something that I, I was really up for the challenge and really stoked about the idea of doing it. And once I really dove in, it was super, super fulfilling, almost like songwriting was. Like there were moments where I would be writing something and really trying to incorporate some aspect of the story that might have felt like sort of arbitrary or, you know, something I wanted to incorporate, but didn't wasn't quite clicking or fitting. And then I would un sort of uncover some other part to the story that would just illuminate that other thing that I wanted to to incorporate and make it very sensible. And there, there's some really, um, really cool moments in, in writing it, finding, you know, when you have this big 
area to play with this whole story this arc and all this stuff and all these people and backstories and future stories and there's just so much you can do and it was, it was, it was a lot of fun so that was the the first part of it and while i was doing that we you know we're looking through comic book artists and and trying to figure out that whole thing there were a lot that we had spoken to that were really great artists that were just you know like i said super busy for the next year or two we happened upon a guy named brent mckee um who was pretty high up on our list and he just so happened to be finishing up uh, a comic he was doing and he had the time and he was a cool guy and his brother happened to be a really big fan of ours so that, that helped and we've been working with him ever since he's just finished issue number two and that's gone on to the colorist colorist is bill crabtree who's done invincible and all kinds of stuff after bill it goes to a letterer pat rousseau who's done hellboy and tons of tons of stuff so very legitimate crew working on this and yeah it's it's art directed by me the scene descriptions that i put in the script are very very descriptive uh, i try to be as like leave as few stones unturned as i can in terms of what what i'm trying to look for but i'm also you know i've always been the kind of artist that really respects other artists right that's kind of what I was wondering. It's like, on the one hand, you hire somebody because yeah. you love their work and you want to trust them. But on the other hand, if you have something in mind, you want to make sure that they understand that. And like, how do you communicate that without bumming them out and being like, okay, Ryan's a control freak. Fuck this guy. Right, right. I mean, there might have been the potential for that. I knew that I liked this guy's work just from the onset. I could see that his stuff was was rad. It was sort of like a somewhere between like an old school comic vibe and a new school thing. It wasn't as newfangled as a lot of the new stuff coming out, but it also wasn't as archaic as some of the older stuff. It sort of fit right in the middle, which is what I really liked. And then I had more probably creative input on the coloring than than I did anything else because I wanted it to be really flat. I tend to like the Mike Mignola style, mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of gradients, isolated color palettes. So that I was a little bit more, um, I don't want to say overbearing, but I had more direction there. With Brent, when he was starting the sketches for the characters and for some of that stuff, I had some initial feedback, but I could tell he was really great to work with, had thick skin, which he told me up front, which was awesome. And once he started rolling, I didn't really have anything for him. Everything was just came back perfect, 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 to the point where he stopped sending me sketches and he he would just send me finished pages. And so oh, that that's, whole... That's super cool. Yeah. Halfway through the first issue, it was like he would just send finish inks finish inks and i never you know i think maybe once or twice i would be like hey can you tweak this little thing right here just little nuances but um it's an awesome relationship because everyone's you know so far everyone's been super easy to work with and like it's such a great experience when you get to work with someone who you know you're a fan of yeah and you're just like stoked to see what they're going to come up with it's such a good feeling oh it's i mean I, as a kid i had always sort of fantasized about doing comic art i just I never had that that thing. Like I can draw, you know, to a degree I can illustrate, but it's I'm good at straight on, straight profile, like the dynamic perspectives right. and stuff like that that comic book artists do still blows me away. So when he'll send me a panel and it's like from the corner of the room looking down and you have these perspectives of these people, I'm still just like, "Ah, oh, yes." Yeah. You know, that's I could never do that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that feeling. And this is also self-released correct it is yeah so that's another thing you know we were talking about do we for the comics specifically do we do, go through a publisher do we you know how do we do this and the more we talked about it the more we talked about the record the more we talked about everything 
the more we just wanted to see what it looked like and what it felt like to do everything ourselves. There are very few blind spots in this band in terms of what we can do on our own. Obviously, as a, a designer who's worked as long as the band has been around, I have deep roots in you know both relationships that have to do with like these guys that we're working with with the comic um you know obviously album cover artists seagrave did another couple of uh covers for this and then you know we have on the deluxe edition little sound vignettes that are um you know sort of mirroring the comic these little interludes that are narrated and sound designed and the guy who did the sound design is my friend Randy, who uh, who does sound design on Christopher Nolan movies. Um, so there's a ton of just between all of us. It's like our guitar player is the producer. He produced it. He mixed it. I can handle all the artwork. Uh, Ryan Downey, who you know, is is very connected in terms of writing and all that kind of stuff. He he helped me edit it. My buddy John, who's the bass player, he helped me write some of it as well. He works at an ad agency. They do a lot of story building stuff. Uh, John used to work as an A&R. John used to work in publishing. So we're we're like this unit that sort of has everything that we need. I have relationships with manufacturers that I've worked with for years. So I'm the one doing all that footwork anyway. Even if we were signed to a label, I would probably be talking to a manufacturer right. like A to Z and going through crunching numbers and talking about colors and templates and all that kind of stuff because I'm that hands-on anyway. With this, we we're like, we know we can do it ourselves so why don't we just see what that looks like you know maybe it won't maybe demon hunter 12 and 13 might be on a label we don't know but at least for this one i'd be remiss to to not see what it looked like at least once where we're in a spot in our career where we can do it so it's not so much that there were any there was any sort of fallout or anything with the label just like hey let's do this ourselves and see what happens definitely not no those guys are, are lifelong friends you know i've been signed to whether it was tooth and nail or solid state since 1996 um, and i worked there in-house as a art director and designer for 13 years on top of being signed to bands three different bands to the label and so yeah i have nothing but love for those guys and that that'll be a lifelong relationship regardless of where the band is definitely no falling out those they've been nothing but amazing to us for you know the 19 20 years that we've been doing this this was just a, a purely like you know let's see if we can do it kind of a thing we were fortunate enough you guys do have as liam neeson says a very particular set of skills right that you know most bands just aren't going to bring to the table so I think that makes sense. Yeah, that's ex exactly it. How much of your time these days is the band versus, you know, design and the other stuff that you do? I know you're, you've got a tour coming up, so there is that. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's, it's seasonal in that when we are more active as a band, whether that's, you know, we're ramping up for a record, we're getting ready to record, we're songwriting, we're prepping for a tour, we're on tour. All of those sort of things obviously necessitate more focus on Demon Hunter. The design is basically every second that that's not happening. My design job is I work for myself, but it very much is a nine to five, you know, every weekday, sometimes weekends, sometimes evenings. And when I'm getting ready to do any of those Demon Hunter related things, I, I'm really mindful about whether or not I'm taking on new clients, taking on new projects. When is this job supposed to shore up? Uh, can I be early on delivering this? How long can the client wait for this? Maybe, you know, if it's a long standing project, maybe I can turn it in after tour because working on tour I've found is nearly impossible. But yeah, that is, I'm doing that as full time as, as anything else. And then 
Luckily, because I work for myself and because I can sort of figure out the priorities of all the design stuff I'm working on, I can carve out these little windows to fly to Nashville and be there for drums, you know, carve out time for for tour. I just have to be, I have to be mindful and, and really uh, do some figuring out, but it's something I've been juggling the two of those things for 20 years. So I, I kind of right. have it, have it dialed. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it right down to the shaking microphone and all. And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Well, I do have some more design questions if you're okay with that. Yeah, 
of course. So I, I actually was originally a fan of yours as a designer back when you and your brother were doing Asterisk Studios, which mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was you. For I was a fan of your stuff for years. Oh, thanks. And, and then I was like, oh, that's Ryan from Focal Point. Wow. Small yeah. world. Uh -huh. And uh, you guys had quite like what a lot of people may not know is like you guys had I mean, I still do. But like you guys had quite a bit of hype, even like sort of at the same time Demon Hunter was getting big as designers. You guys had quite a bit of hype, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a total have your cake and eat it, too. <laughs> yeah. Scenario. Um, I could have very well dropped one or the other and, and gone 100 percent into design or 100 percent into Demon Hunter because. Yeah, especially in the early aughts, they were both just like climbing at the same at the same speed. Um, it's it's funny because both both of those worlds, for the most part, live pretty autonomously from one another. And that invisible creature fans don't fully realize the success that I have in music, and Demon Hunter fans definitely, for the most part, do not understand the the design aspect. But you know, I've been nominated for two Grammy awards, but it has nothing to do with with music. It has to do with design. Um, you know, I've, I've designed hundreds of album covers. Uh, I, I work with Allison Chains a ton, um, tons of different artists, uh, have had a, a lot of, a lot of success in that world and I've been very lucky, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that people don't, they, they sort of just live on their own and I don't try to keep it that way. I don't try to keep them secrets. I, I talk about them freely. It's just, I think people are more drawn to one than the other and right. uh, they don't bother really looking into the other, but I, one of my COVID projects, you know, between my brother and I, I'll grab it here, here real quick. So we had been talking about doing a compendium of album cover artwork uh, that my brother and I did. I just bought that today, by the way. Oh, sweet. Uh, I saw, I was doing some research and I saw that and I just bought it. I'm excited. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a 420 page book of just album cover art that we did, uh, which you can buy on invisiblecreature.com. But that, I mean, in an, in essence is what I've been doing when I'm not doing the band for the last 20 years has been doing album artwork uh, and a lot of other things these days, but uh, it all started with, with music industry stuff. And what a lot of people may not know outside the design world is that, you know, in the design world, there's kind of a, a scene just the same way as there is for music of like, you know, magazines back then and blogs and blah, blah, blah. And you guys were getting a lot of attention for your, from your, for your design work in the design press that had no idea who these bands were it was based purely on the work which was super cool for me to see yeah i mean it was it's it's cool because yeah like you said you, you would flip through you know a lot of these design periodicals which i'm not even sure are still around in printed form but print and communication arts and magazines like that would do sort of design annuals where they would select you know the best stuff of the year and we would end up having a bunch of stuff in there and so you would see like bleeding through the truth, like amongst all these like corporate brochures and stuff right. like that. It was just really cool to see the Texaco annual report or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stuff, you know, from the metal world sort of infiltrating into that world. Yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a designer, but I feel like the work that you did back in the day for Tooth and Nail and Solid State, I feel like all that packaging and artwork was a, a non-significant part of what made that label as successful as it was because it that felt like such a polished slick product mm -hmm. that stood next to like it looked as good as a major label release sure and it was maybe the first time 
that I mean, there was like, you know, um, Jade Tree and stuff, but sure, maybe the first time that this kind of music got that kind of really polished branding. Yeah. I mean, that honestly has everything to do with Brandon Ebel's taste. Um, when he started Tooth and Nail, that was at sort of the forefront of his mind is that he would he would not just with his bands and musically, but also aesthetically you know, take on the most artistic labels out there mm-hmm. head on, uh, whether it was 4AD or um, like you said, Jade Tree or any of those labels that did sort of put art on the forefront. He wanted to be that in essence, and he wanted to do the same thing and just have everything be really quality. So even before I started working for them or my brother even earlier started working for them, he was hiring people that that were not very cheap to do artwork for for album packages just because he he really believed in it. And so when we started working for him, my brother and and uh, and myself years later, um, it was just always that was always at the at the crux of it all was he really cared about high quality artwork. He was willing to sort of do whatever it whatever it took to get it. Right. How did you I mean, I know that there's some family history with, you know, your your dad and your grandfather and stuff being in, you know, the design and illustration kind of world, but how did you specifically get into design into design and if i'm not mistaken you're self-taught correct yeah it's unusual for somebody to be that good and also self-taught well thank you what you're referring to is my grandfather worked at nasa as an illustrator for 28 years he was incredible incredible illustrator and my brother and i had always just since we were born always just true it was very innate for us we never thought twice about it. Um, it's all we ever wanted to do. I would get grounded for whatever when I was growing up. And as long as I could sit and draw, I didn't care at all that I was grounded, you know? So that was my life growing up. Every piece of homework I had had doodles on it. Um, I, I did graffiti for years. So whatever it was, I was always painting, drawing, something like that. My brother had started, he's four years older than I am. Um, he had started before me kind of dabbling in design. Um, we always had Macintoshes early on. We were um, definitely not wealthy growing up, but my dad had sort of a, a thing for Macintosh um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And so we had a, a Mac Plus basically the year that it came out, which would probably be 89, 90. And so we had some really early versions of like desktop publishing things and early versions of, of like Mac Paint and whatever it was. So we were always dabbling in that kind of world. Um, there was like real early coding stuff. There was a program called HyperCard that you could mm-hmm. sort of create your own little games and stuff with. Um, I was doing that when I was probably 12 years old, 13 years old. But honestly, I took a huge step back from anything like that for years throughout my teen years and everything. Um, and so I, I was not up with the times at all in terms of knowing how to design an illustrator, Photoshop, any of that stuff. And my brother had been tinkering, like I said, um, he started just out of necessity working on seven inch covers for like life sentence records who we had a Mm -hmm. relationship with in the nineties when focal point did a seven inch with them. He ended up designing it, you know, at Kinko's basically like putting stuff together like you did back then, whether it was a zine or seven inch or whatever, you would just sort of cut and paste. And um, that's what he did for our seven inch. And then Dan Gump who, who ran the label really liked his stuff and, so he ended up redoing the Life Sentence logo and doing, you know, uh, seven inch layouts for bands like Clear or Lifeless. And Oh, I remember that those were pretty slick. I didn't yeah. know that he did them. He didn't do like the fine art aspect, like on the, the cover of the Clear record, there was like a painting, but he would yeah. do all the like typeset and all right. that stuff. And then he would basically do that for trade. Um, 
at one point i think dan traded him like a zip drive uh <laughs> with some zip disks for some work and, and then later i think it became a jazz drive i don't even remember those wow fancy yeah so i mean my brother was pretty early with all that that's probably mid 90s and so he was dabbling when focal point first got signed i think it was probably 1995 we expressed that we wanted him to do the artwork for it so brandon again being so cool and sort of championing championing good art you know we had a guy do the painting for the cover but we wanted my brother to sort of design around it brandon offered to fly my brother up from sacramento to seattle to work and design it in the tooth and nail art department so my brother got like kind of a firsthand glimpse at how that would work and oh that's so cool getting the proofs and get yeah having people help him with it so that was his first sort of foray into like legitimate design um and then from then on Brandon hired him to do more and more stuff. So he ended up doing like the Spitfire record that was, you know, the first tooth and nail Spitfire record and the first embodiment or second embodiment record. So he did that. And so, yeah, he did that one super cool embodiment cover. It was like all the grungy kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The sideways cityscape thing uh, yeah. or road view thing. Yeah. That one he did. Yeah. He did do that. It was one of his first ones. He did living sacrifice hammering process. Okay. He did a bunch of Zayo stuff. That was his, he was doing that kind of before I was doing it. And then fast forward to late 90s, it's about to be 2000, Training for Utopia, our band that me and my brother had together, starting to sort of fizzle out. My brother gets a, an offer for a dot-com job in Seattle. By the way, if you want to read about all this, I wrote a big, long story. And oh, nice. All this. I'm excited. That's the only reason I, it's coming to mind so quickly <laughs> is because I, I just had to do this walk down memory. No spoilers. <laughs> so he got a design job at a very boring sort of dot-com thing with a friend of ours from Sacramento. So the two of them were going to move up to Seattle for this design job. Um, I was working at a record store at the time. And he was like, do you want to come with us? And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to sink here in, in Sacramento if, if I don't change something. So I just went up with him on a whim. Um, you know, we had a relationship with people that worked at Tooth & Nail, having been signed on bands and, and having friends there and stuff for years. So I knew that there was sort of that in the background if I moved there. And then a couple of years, or I'm sorry, like a half a year after living there, they had lost one of their uh, in-house designers the other designer who worked there, who I, I had sort of forged a relationship with since moving there, uh, his name is Greg, Greg Patterson. Who, you might even know Greg Patterson. He uh, worked for the Artery Foundation for a while, worked oh, okay. for Papa Roach for a long time. He uh, was in the art department at the time, and he was like, you should you should come and do the, you know, be the other designer in here. I'm like, Dude, I don't know anything about design at all. Uh, and he's like, just come in and I'll just teach you. And you can ask your brother a lot of questions when you're you know, tinkering at home or whatever. So you didn't have like the ambition of being a graphic designer. I didn't. Although at that point I was like, I knew I wanted to do some version of visual art as a, as sort of a background, you know, a, a, a fail safe, so to speak. But for people who don't know, like drawing and graphic design are not the same thing. Not at all. No, not at all. Which all I did was do art and paint and draw and stuff. So I knew that, you know, to a degree, I just didn't know how to I didn't even know how to like work an email program. So it was like everything was brand new to me. But uh, Brandon, who, you know, I had a relationship with the owner of the label, basically gave me like a an internship in the mornings before my my day job working at Buffalo Exchange selling clothes. <laughs> I did that for probably like two months, two or three months and just learned the ropes. You know, I asked a ton of questions and then ended up getting hired. And then Greg sort of took on another position. I became art director all of a sudden. I hired Chris McCadden, who was in Embodiment, who was himself an amazing designer. He had worked under Paul Brown, 
or better known as PR Brown, um, for a number of years in Los Angeles. Paul's responsible for doing like all the best Marilyn Manson artwork and, you know, all I mean, the disturbed cover that everyone knows, like mm-hmm. um, tons of amazing work. And so Chris worked under him for a long time. When I had the opportunity to hire Chris in the art department, when he came in, that was just like a flood of knowledge, especially in like the Photoshop world. Um, it's just sort of how how those photos or those manipulations are sort of created. And that was a massive growing time for me in, in Photoshop, especially was having him like right next to me. So that had a lot to do with it. And that was such a specific kind of Photoshop look at that time, too. It was it was. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of our early stuff was, you know, uh, very obviously heavily inspired by the stuff Paul Brown was doing. Um, it's for those that aren't familiar, it's a lot of the um, textured photograph stuff, the stuff that looks like, well, it, it, at its best, it looks like something you hand developed in a dark room and it has right. sort of like textures and burns and, you know, holes in it or whatever, which a lot of that was done in post with layers. And Paul was amazing at making it look real. And then there were a lot of designers that weren't very good at making it look real, including us early on. Such as yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that, you know, that was a huge, and then the rest is sort of history. Like Chris came and went, I hired other people. Um, and then I was there for 13 years and the the pace of working there was breakneck. So I learned so fast because I was just adamant to be able to keep up and create as big of a portfolio as possible and be as dynamic and, and as styleless, you know, as I could just be able to do everything and do it all well. And that was, you know, I, I obsessed about that for years and years. So, and your batting average was so high. I mean, doing that much stuff in such a short period of time, you know, without any real stinkers in there is really impressive. I, you know, there are some stinkers that, that we just never really showed, uh, and that records that people never really paid attention to. Um, certainly some of the early stuff I look back and, and it's very cringy. Um, but again, like we never promoted that we did it. I left my name out of some stuff that I really disliked. Um, but there was so much, the volume was so high that there was a lot of opportunity to do really cool stuff. And there was some really cool bands happening at the time, like bands that were in, you know, themselves like really artistic and really interested in doing cool art. He is legend, dead poetic, um, you know, all kinds of bands that were like basically gave us free reign, Norma Jean. Um, and so that allowed us to really flex like whatever we wanted to at the time. And that was, again, this is prior to like, like the real like digital overtaking of music. So physical music was still selling and selling really well. So when it came to doing, you know, elevated packaging, whether it was like die cuts or clear vellum paper or metallic spot colors or mixed papers, um, all kinds of like cool additions to the design in the packaging uh, sense. Those were all on the table because not only did Brandon really, again, really want something that was cool and, and high value, but we were like chomping at the bit to be able to do stuff like that. And so we really got, again, this huge playground to, to be able to do a bunch of stuff that um, other labels weren't doing or, you know, labels that were, would, pinch pennies a little bit more wouldn't allow i mean i would do booklets that were up to like 40 pages and that's amazing i mean you know just stuff that like 
Having someone who's willing to invest in that is yeah, that was a huge, huge factor. Because it's like there's a an actual. It's not like these days, you know, we're digital. You go a million pages, it doesn't matter. Like that actually increases the cost of the album. Yeah. And most people, understandably, might not want to invest in that. So that's super cool. Of course, yeah. We there was a very um, clear moment after digital had started really like impacting when you know not just with tooth and nail all that they they still even less than other labels would would uh would still want high quality you know interesting artwork um and so even though they put the clamp down a little bit other labels were were far worse there were a lot of moments where it was like every label you talk to whether it was sony capital roadrunner whatever it's like eight page book no special inks you know that's kind of what what happened i would say probably around 2011 2012 right so i have i have some very detailed nerdy questions that most people won't care about but i'm curious sure. um so i'm looking at your uh website here ryan clark record uh-huh. there's a very wide variety of work here some of the stuff you know uh, i it, it looks like it's you know pretty clearly like some sort of a photoshop or illustration thing on your part but there's somewhere it's more of like um you know it might just be a photo for example, there's like this Anne Berlin never take friendship personal one. It's a photo of a statue mm-hmm. um, or there's like search the city with an illustration on it. I don't know if you did that or not. Um, how much of that like is art direction on your part versus creating the art? Can you talk about sort of the ways that that might play out? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. If it's illustrated and it's on that website, I did illustrate it. Um so whether it's a painting or an illustration, there's a lot of album covers that I didn't put on there that I did art direct mm. that I did not illustrate. Because um, it might paint. be kind of weird if your name is on Ryan Clark record cover. You don't want people to think that you're yeah. taking credit for the illustration. Totally. Yeah. I could have added another 40 covers that like Dan Seagrave painted and I art directed or whatever. But that's not really what that what that the point of that website. It was like, here's the the album covers that I actually did i i'd say when you point out like things like the amberlin album cover um or a lot of the photographic stuff although there's a handful of photographs that i literally did take those were art directed by me sometimes set dressed by me and then the the bulk of them were heavily photoshopped mm-hmm. uh, manipulated by me after the fact so if you look at like any of the uh oh sleeper album covers those were shot by a, a good friend named Jared Knudsen. And then I basically uh, took 12 photos and brought them all together and, and did hours and hours of Photoshop work to create the design, essentially. Something like the Amberlin head. I actually broke that head. I bought that head. I brought it in. I set it on the, the seamless. And I had a, a photographer named Jeff Gross shoot that. So um, it was either with the photography stuff. It's like, like I said, there's a handful that I did myself. Um, If it looks like old photography, if it looks like sort of, you know, clippings, collage-esque kind of stuff, that's which a decent amount of that stuff is as well. That's all old pre-printed materials that I keep by the truckload here in my office. Old Life magazines, Time magazines, stuff like that, that I hope I'll never get sued for. But um (laughs) That's that's a lot of that stuff. I like that approach of in terms of what you you know chose to include on the site because you know one of the kind of uh, 
I don't know, kind of it's a yucky feeling when someone takes credit for art direction on a thing. And I mean, maybe they really did art direct it, but it's like, well, you didn't take the photo. You didn't do the illustration. You didn't make the logo. You just put them there. And and sometimes that's what design is. Yeah. But you know what I mean? A hundred percent. I've looked through a lot of portfolios in hiring people, um, you know, an adage agency for a few years and looked through a, a bunch of portfolios and what i noticed in more recent years is a lot of that is sort of a very gray area as to what your role was in producing something uh designed you know maybe that was the right thing to do it's hard like i said it's a gray area i personally would never take credit for what a lot of people are taking credit for these days i feel like ethically that's a little weird and i was lucky enough to not have to do that because again i I was so entrenched in mountains of work that over the course of a month, if I did two stinkers, I would do another three or four that were pretty decent. I could put them up on the portfolio and it was it was just happening so rapidly that I there was no problem having enough up there. Right. With a lot of these people that are you know, that I see today that don't have that sort of breadth of work, I see them sort of grasping at straws for good stuff to put in their portfolio. And I think that's really what it is for the most part is they don't have a ton of great work, but maybe they had their hands in a few things that ended up really good and they can't help but put those in their portfolio. Um, I think that's usually what we're looking at. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, so one of the I, I don't know if this is the case for you, but one of the things with a lot of entertainment and music work in general is that you get to do really cool stuff. But for the most part, it doesn't pay all that well. Mm-hmm. Um now you guys as invisible creature have some real top shelf clients on your roster target acura microsoft amazon you know stuff like this how do you um kind of bridge the gap between doing an august burns red album cover and doing an in-store display for target like how do you get from here to there the actual road from primarily music industry related stuff to doing a lot of that stuff, whether it's Target NASA or Nickelodeon or whatever it is. I, I feel like I've sort of sussed out what that road likely was. And was it deliberate? Not entirely, although it was sort of a lucky byproduct of what we were doing. I'll talk about the financial aspect in a second, but in yeah. terms of the segue between the music industry and a lot of that other stuff, I think a decent chunk of that has to do with when album packaging and physical format was starting to wane a little bit we saw a shift in into gig posters and mm-hmm. and other things like that to commemorate either a, a show or a, or a festival or a tour or whatever starting to pick up um even though cds weren't weren't selling as well so a lot of people were sort of putting their efforts into those sorts of things at that time we went sort of head first into that and we started creating a lot of gig posters the cool thing about doing gig posters is a lot of them, you could just contact the venue or the promoter and you could say, hey, I want to do a poster for Arcade Fire. Do you have anyone to do that yet? No. Cool. Okay. Like we wouldn't even for years, we weren't, we weren't asking a fee for these things. We were just saying, hey, we'd like to do this. We'll do it for free. In a lot of instances, we were actually printing the posters uh, on our dime and then our trade-off would be can we sell 50 of these, 100 of these on our on our site, which we seldom did, by the way. Uh, this was all an absolute labor of, of love. 
very rarely made any money on these things. Uh, Arcade Fire, uh, things like that would be the exception. But we did tons of these things for lesser known acts. But you're building up an amazing body of work. I mean, you already had one, but... Yes. Well, what posters allowed us to do was do work for you know promoters bands tours whatever it was festivals and a lot of, again since we were going usually through promoters versus the artists or management themselves we weren't being really art directed very much it was kind of like yeah give us a good looking poster and we're good right so we would basically hand over a poster uh and if it looked good the promoter would be like sweet thank you so there was no like over art direction we weren't designing for someone else's art you know, like we like we do with album covers, which sometimes you get it and sometimes it looks great despite, you know, whether whatever direction you got from the band, sometimes it doesn't. This was more of like a like it was the, the process was a little purer and that we got to kind of do whatever we wanted. We also started flexing our illustration skills more when we started doing this, which is another huge thing. Which is a skill a lot of designers don't have. Right. To be able to illustrate as well as you guys do is not common at all. It is, it's true, yeah. The two are sort of you know mutually exclusive for the most part. But when we started full circle coming back to our illustration roots, we really got to show that off in poster design. And the segue there is that it's very unlikely that an art director at Target or someone who an animator at Pixar would have like a Norma Jean CD on their on their desk. And these are the people who would hire like so when they're I'm just connecting the dots for people. So when Target is like, oh, what are we going to do for our Halloween campaign? The art director is the person who picks the agency or individual who they hire to do that work. Right, right. Exactly. It's very unlikely that any of those people would have like a CD sitting on their desk that we did. What's much more likely is that they went to a festival like an Austin City Limits or, um, you know, went to a Black Rebel Motorcycle Club show or whatever it was. And they have a poster that we did and which had a credit on it. That became a thing that we were finding out was happening more and more frequently. So there were people at Nike that had our posters in their office. There were people at Microsoft everywhere. And it started to just snowball from there. We did Bumbershoot one year. We did Austin City Limits one year. We And then at one point we did sort of a bigger festival that Chipotle was putting on in Chicago. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. My brother started doing Sasquatch every year. I think he did Sasquatch for five or six years. And that stuff gets a lot of eyes on it. It clicked with me at some point that that was basically what had happened as the path between music stuff and bigger corporate clients was a lot of this. And not only because it was ending up in people's offices, but because, like I said, it was very much like a pure art form that we got to sort of do on our own and, and, and flex skills that we hadn't done in a long time. And especially with illustration, which is basically all my brother does at this point. He's doing children's books. And and the cool thing about that sort of route is that then you're less likely to be super art directed, even by the corporate client. They're like, hey, that thing you did on that poster for Sasquatch, just do that for us. Ideally, yeah. Um, that's definitely more theoretical than it is <laughs> sure, actual, but sure. you know, there have been times where we've been able to play that card. Like, Hey, you came to us for this, right? We're at the point now where you're sort of like neutering every aspect of it. If you want it to turn out great, you know, again, you can't bite the hand that feeds too many times right. or too hard, but every once in a while you, you might have to remind people like, Hey, you came to us for this reason. If you want it to be quality you got to take a little step back and let us just do our thing. Right. I'll let you go in a a minute here. Two last things. Number one, uh, my friend Jose Galvan says, hi, you mentioned him (laughs) on a podcast that I was listening to a couple of years ago. 
about giving you giving you a ride when you were 15 or something. Yeah. And uh, he's he's one of my best friends. He was very excited about that. That's amazing. I haven't actually seen Jose face to face in probably 25, 26 years. He was basically like the hardcore godfather of Sacramento. Um, when me and all my friends were first getting into hardcore in the you know mid 90s starting bands and it was we lived in a suburb of of sacramento called elk grove and um it was very like new development and stuff and just a bunch of people my age and we were sort of formulating our own little scene you know in our little suburb and that's how focal point started other things just sort of sort of happening around we would do house shows and like it was just very organic and cool and new and fresh when we started sort of venturing into sacramento and meeting the guys like from Will Haven, who had a band named Sock even before Will Haven, like the guys from Far, they all sort of like lived in houses together and the Deftones guys were around. And um, when we started venturing out into that world, we started meeting a lot of those guys. Jose was like the gatekeeper of like hardcore. He was a little bit older than us. He had records. He had VHS, you know, of every show you could ever imagine. He knew all the hardcore bands. He had relationships with all these people. So going to his house and like watching, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen a Man of War video was at Jose's <laughs> house <laughs> and just seeing like the wall of cabinets, you know, it was just like, what is this? You know, I still right don't like Man of War, but I, I appreciate that moment. Yeah. Also, just last thing is, uh, you know, what you guys have done both as the band and with your design careers and stuff, super inspiring to me. I've been a fan of both for a very long time. Uh, so thank you. Excited to sit down and talk to you guys about this. Congratulations on 20 years and uh, excited to see uh, what's coming next. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.